Hi, this is Jennifer Gaskin. And this is Giselle Rivera Flores. And this is Don't Don't Touch Touch My My Podcast. Podcast. The show where we delve into the complexities of diversity, inclusivity, and what it means to be a Latin and Black woman in America. Season one, episode two of the Don't Touch My podcast. Today's topic is the first in our series on the housing market. We're going to talk about the racial wealth gap. And with that, we want to kick it off with a quote from Danielle Solomon, the VP of Race and Ethnicity Policy at the Center for American Progress. She states, the time has long passed for the U.S. government to fully address 400 years of collective harms against Black people. As the next president engages in conversations about systematic inequalities, they must be bold, they must be honest, they must deliver intentional and targeted approaches to closing the racial wealth gap. So Jen, what does that mean to you? Well, I think the thing that stands out the most to me about that quote is about the collective 400 years of collective harms against Black people. Um, And as a Black person, I think about my legacy and about, you know, the opportunities for generational wealth. I think in, in my community, at least, most of that opportunity rests in home ownership, or at least initially rests in home ownership. And when I think about, you know, our family, pretty much every um home investment that my elders have made has come to the point now that we need to sell that property in order to deal with their long-term care. So what does that mean for generational wealth and the the legacy of wealth in my family? It it actually means that it starts with them. And then each generation after that is starting over. So for me, when I think about the legacy of the racial wealth gap and how do we change that, I think it really starts with, you know, financial literacy and and really understanding how to make your money work for you. And then, you know, getting out of the student loan debt, like you and I have spoken about, Black women hold the most student loan debt. Um, And that's just us trying to you know, get the degrees and get the certifications so that we can get out in the workforce and be the first, you know, generation to earn more money, to to actually earn the American dream. But it also means that we're left, um, you know, without without a preceding legacy. So, I mean, how how is that like shaped out in your family? I think it's the same in the sense that home ownership is definitely a topic of conversation. We're talking about intergenerational wealth, right? Something that a legacy that we leave behind for our children, the next generation, the next generation. So, you know, unlike income or education, like wealth can be passed through several generations and it can last multitude of generations. And for me within my family, you know, coming from, you know, my grandmother moving from Puerto Rico to New York City and uh, my mom growing up in the city, you know, there was a a disadvantage and an advantage. You know, for us, the advantage was that we didn't grow up or I wasn't born in, you know, Puerto Rico and where the economics there are just not what it should be, right? And the opportunities are less and hard to come by um, within the small island. I mean, Puerto Rico is just so tiny. Mm -hmm. However, you know, I think that everybody you know, and even though we're citizens, let's make that clear, coming to the main island, which would be the States, there's still some disadvantage, right? So my grandmother, um, 
wasn't able to solidify a house. You know, she she grew up in a time where we're talking about women couldn't really work still, right? So this is like at the beginning of a generation where women were just starting to work. Um, women were just getting, you know, their own, um, I guess, settling themselves in as individuals. So for us, it, it means that every generation was getting a little bit better, but we were starting from scratch. Yeah, you know, yeah. There, there was nothing that was being passed down um, as far as properties or legacies or, or wealth. It was really just an accumulation of, you know, a little here and there that got the next generation to to a better place. And I think that coming from the Latin community or even the black community, I think the goal is always for the next generation to have it better than the last. Right. That's always the, the best thing. But, you know, when we talk about intergenerational wealth, it really is hard to accumulate that when oftentimes if we have property, we have to sell it in order to take care of, you know, our families and other debts that we might incur or college debts or things like that, right? Where we're graduating from college degrees and masters and PDHs or PhDs, not PDHs, um, <laughs> PhDs at a rapid, at a rapid speed. However, we're not our, our living expenses are so high that it's very hard to accumulate that wealth that we can say will be handed off to the next generation. Well, even like when we were doing research for this episode, we came upon um, information that in, on April 16th of 1862, um, President at that time, Abraham Lincoln, signed the act of the release of certain persons held to service or labor within the District of Columbia. And so basically what that did within the District of Columbia was to compensate slave owners $300 per slave if they freed them. And then for the freed slaves, if they left the United States, repatriated to Africa or wherever, they would receive $100. So already there, you're seeing a three times difference between you know, what a white person is receiving. And then on the, on the black person's side, like they're basically being told to return to somewhere that they were stolen from and not being compensated for. Right. Or, or starting off as a freed person without any income at all. Yep. Yep. Right? So yep. instead if of saying, Hey, you've been yep. enslaved for however many years, here's something to start you off with. Here's a piece of land, you know, some sort of reparation. They were started from zero. And yep. the white slave owners still somehow reaped benefit from, you know, allowing, quote unquote, their enslaved person to be free. Yep. So they were still seen as like the victim in this situation. We're sorry you're losing property. Here is, you know, some compensation for that. And then there was a there was some data from um, the Federal Reserve in 1990 where they talked about white households holding 90.7% of the household wealth in the United States. Black households own 3.8% and then Hispanic households at 2.1%. And what I think was jarring to me was that the numbers have changed very little over the 30 years. So when they looked at this data in 2019, White households had 85.5% of the wealth. Black households had 4.2 and then 3.1 for Hispanic um, households. So basically we were, you know, for Hispanic households went up a, a 1% and then um, for black households, we went up 4.4%, not even a full percent. Um, so it's a, you know, going back to that sustained wealth of white Americans you know, at a 40 year head start. Right. And so when we look at things right now, when we talk about 
the the intergenerational wealth gap you know this is something that stems from the beginning of our civilized country right this is something that when we talk about equality we talk about equity we're talking about really the differences in not the opportunities that we have at this time right now in 2022 I think that the opportunities are there, right? Jen, can you go apply for a house? Do you have to have a man with you on the lease? No. Can you apply as a black person? Yes. Can I do the same thing as a, as a Latin person? Yes. So technically, the accessibility is there. However, the, the, the drawback is that many of us are starting at a very different place. This is taking decades upon decades upon decades to even be able to reach this point and where we can walk into a bank and say, I'm here to get a mortgage. And, you know, let me not even get started on the discrepancies that happen thereafter. Right. So right, it's right, not just right. getting in. Now I have access to the front door and I can get into the BOAs of the world and say, I'm here to get a mortgage. But now am I being discriminated against? Am I getting a higher APR? Am I, you know, being told that I don't qualify when I do? Like there are just so many other barriers and and challenges that come after that. But I'm talking about the ability just to access these things, right? I think that now we're in a place and where we can access it, but we're still drawn back because many of us don't have the capital. Many of us don't have the down payment. Many of us don't know about the, the resources that um, the country provides for you, right? In certain, in certain states that they provide for you on a federal level um, to be able to become homeowners. So that way you do have something that you're passing down to your children, because at the end of the day, like we keep saying, it is really about the next generation and what we do impacts that. And if we can take off some of that burden for our children, then that's something that we should be doing on our own because we know very well what it means to not have that. Right. And then if you look at like, even if you get down to like really the basics of like the social determinants of health, so like we both talked about, we both grew up in the inner city, right? So there's definitely things that come with that, poor air quality, um, food deserts, et cetera, right? So you're already set up kind of at a disadvantage from, from where you come from. And then like when I went to get a mortgage, it was like, oh, well, you don't have your parents to help you with a down payment. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, like, my up. parents Let are me still call working. My mom real quick and see if she can lend me a couple grand. <laughs> right. No, they're still working and they're still paying a mortgage. So I'm going to go with negative. They don't have any money to give me. Um, so there was a study in Boston where it talks about the network of Boston U U.S. Um, black families was $8. Caribbean black families was $12,000. Puerto Rican families was $3,020 and other Hispanics, $2,700. And this is net worth. So this is your worth, you know, after all debts and assets are assessed. And this would include things like 401ks, et cetera. So like end of life planning, long-term care planning, life insurance, like those are the, the key components that, you know, we need to think about putting it in place for our children so that they don't get to the point that now we're elderly and we need long-term care or we need to go into assisted living etc and they get to the point where they have to sell our home right and then i mean and there's two parts to that right well so your community the black community the latin community we come from a collective community right mm -hmm. and where our societies are infused with generations of family members right so oftentimes yeah like you people didn't go in nursing homes right people because they live at homes. homes right because you see that like for for us and within my family it's like 
my grandmother was the head of house for everybody. Yep. You know, she wasn't yep. just the head of house uh, in her house. She was everybody's head of house. So it was like we are, are groomed from being very young that family comes first. Family comes before anything that you can do for yourself individually. And if you focus on yourself individually, then you are seen as like a, a, selfish, a, a yep. selfish person, right? You become like the scapegoat of the family. And so we are, are, are groomed to think, you know, I have to, not only do I have to make it with the little bit that I do have, but now I have to give back to my family and make sure that yep. Abuela's okay and she's not in a nursing home, make sure my mom's okay. And at the end of the day, you know, those are those are things that are often seen within our family as must do's, right? So they don't really even see that that's like a form of trauma that's being passed on to the other generations. They see it as just how we are as a community. We kind of put our family before ourselves. Whereas, and I'm not saying all white communities, but definitely in America, it is an, a very individualistic community in where you do what's best for you and your hope that you have enough that you can then maybe, you know, sprinkle a little here, sprinkle right here, there. Yeah. Whereas our main purpose and our whys are to make sure that our family is okay at the very end of the day and that exceeds our immediate family. But not only that, I think in the case of, of um, white families, like, so in the sample that, that talked about the, the net worth in, the, in Boston, in the greater Boston area, it said the whites in the study sample had more advantaged parents than their black and Hispanic pairs. For example, only 17% of the white young adults in our study had parents who lacked a high school degree, compared to 46 to 63% of the black and Hispanic young adults, respectively. So it's like our parents are not even educated on these things in order to be able to educate us. So we're losing out on the intergenerational education about how to be financially stable. Right. And, I, you know, and for me, that brings me back to like uh, Maslow's hierarchy, right? Like the laws of how do we achieve the maximum human uh, potential, right? And so if at the very bottom of the pyramid, you, you think of things that are basic human necessities like home, you know, like shelter, food, well-being, healthcare, things like that. So if we are in a situation in where we are worried about food, we're worried about where our next uh, place to sleep is going to be, we're worried about uh, the safety of our, of our children, we're worried about um, how we're going to get medicine, how can we afford insulin and all the other things, how could anyone within the community really reach that potential you know their maximum potential as a human being it's very difficult you know when you don't have the basic tools it's kind of hard to focus on how do I get out of this hole how do I become better right and I feel like sometimes people say you know you use that and you feel it and you use it to to motivate yourself and that becomes your why but that within itself is is difficult and it's very traumatizing to say I don't have a a, a next meal so you know what this is going to be my reason why I'm going to achieve the most that I can possibly achieve opposed to saying you know I do have the things that I I need to 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 fulfill my to thrive my, yeah yeah myself as a human being as a productive human being so now I can go out with a full belly with medicine in my body with a nice place to sleep in and then focus on being exceptional Exactly. And I mean, I think that that's, you know, we talk a lot about like black girl magic and this and that, because I think it it comes from that place of adversity where you're like, OK, so what am I going to eat for for dinner tonight? But you're still like, I'm going to eat this for dinner and then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to school. Right. Like I think about myself where, like I mentioned, 
um, previously, I went through the Metco program. So I took the bus from Dorchester to Weston every day of my, you know, K through 12 school career. And so sometimes I was out there at 5.30 in the morning to catch the bus. Sometimes I didn't get home till 4.30. If I played sports, you got home like 7, 7.30. I still had to do my full, you know, homework that my counterparts were already home doing their homework at like 4. And I didn't get home until 7. And then I have to get up at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning if I'm rushing to make the bus. So really, like, my ability to sleep, my ability to you know, just function was completely different than my counterparts, even though I was getting the same education. Right. And then let's, you know, if you fast forward a little bit, then you become of working age. And yep. what does that mean? Now we're talking about, I mean, I'm, I'm a prime example of that. I've been, you know, working in the workforce since I was 14, since the moment that I found out that I could work, I was working. Um, and I knew that because, you know, growing up in New York, there's there's a whole nother pressure of just, you know, fitting in and all. Yeah, you want certain things. clothes. You want right. Certain and you don't want to be left out. You. And so. Right. Yeah. And so instead of asking parents constantly for X, Y, Z, it was better off for me to just go work and, and, and purchase things that I thought were important at the time. But again, there was none of that um, kind of like educational piece stating that you know these are frivolous things these are not the most important this is how you save your money this is how you do this and then not and not only just telling me but also implementing it right like hey this is how we go to the bank and this is let me go with you and let me show you and hold your hand and show you the ways uh, because I think a lot of it is that because we come from families like in where you're very um, prone to being grown very early uh, you have to find out on your own and you figure things out on your own yeah. more than your parents actually hold your hands in which I think in individualistic um, communities that's not the case you know there's a lot of hand holding which I didn't get growing up no, definitely not. I was definitely what they used to call a latchkey kid, you know, leaving a lot of times that my parents weren't home, coming home and they weren't home. And you kind of just had to figure it out for yourself. Right. So, you know, how do we how do we go from not having anything from having eight dollars of net? worth as a, a in the black community and zero dollars in the Dominican community by the way you know it, it's it was stated in the same study that yep. Dominican population have a zero net worth meaning literally no dollars you know when we thought eight dollars were bad then we found out the statistics for Dominicans and it was worse than we thought so you know how do we create generational wealth and where we are setting up our our families for the longevity so that way they don't have to have the same struggles as we did. So I think that the keys are right, like things that we've talked about. So it's financial education. It's, you know, learning to invest. It's saving money. It's creating a business. It's life insurance and estate planning. And I always like when you, you hear, especially over the pandemic, we had a lot of, you know, like financial experts come on TV and talk about having this emergency fund in six months. And I kept thinking to myself, like, these are people who, there's people who are living paycheck to paycheck. There's people who take two to three paychecks a month to put together to pay their rent. Like, where am I saving six months worth of Right, and if, if those people are actually saving you know that it's not saving for the future. It's saving for the very next thing that they need. Because, exactly, like their car break. Right, because they're living so tight on a budget that even those extra few dollars that they do get to save ends up going to whatever it is that they needed 
to begin with, just another basic life necessity. Yep, totally, totally. So I think, like, from an educational perspective, you know, we need to start seeing more of that education in the public public school systems. Um, There needs to be more... Um, you know, education available in all communities about how how do you make fiscally sound um, decisions. I don't know about you, like when I went to college, the first thing they did was offer me credit cards. I didn't know anything about credit. And I'm pretty sure I was like right out of high school. Yeah, like I didn't know anything about like paying your, you know, you could get this credit card for $5,000 and you got to pay X amount and you could end up paying this for the next 20 years. Like, I knew and all we heard that. was three $5,000. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, we didn't know any of that. Or like your student loan. You sign off on the student loan. Everybody would get their little um, refund check and you were all excited to get this, you know, two to $3,000 refund check because you figure I can go out and buy, you know, this or that or take care of this bill or do whatever but you're not realizing like when you graduate you got to pay this stuff back and there's people who are 70 years old still playing student loan right and it's it's you know and to another point that you mentioned you know creating generational wealth also means you know thinking about things that i think is taboo in our communities like life insurance Mm -hmm. estate planning um i know for me personally in my um in my personal family and a lot of latin communities I think it's taboo to think about, you know, life insurance. It's almost like, you know, they say you're just you're pl- like you're planning for death. Yeah, exactly. Like there, yeah. it, even though we know it's inevitable, it's like something you don't talk about because it's simply like you're jinxing someone. Right. Yep, so yep. we've had these conversations in where it's like, oh, well, you need life insurance. And, and, you know, like the abuela would be like, I just, you know, like, please, like, don't talk about that because it's just. It's like jinxing her. She's going to die before the day. I mean, we already have, as you guys know, a lot of super weird superstitions yeah, in the Latin we have community. That is definitely one of them. Um, and I know that I have conversations with my mom. You know, we have life insurance, myself, my husband, uh, my kids have life insurance. And it's weird because, you know, I, I see my mom now and she's, you know, she now has life insurance, but she always says to me, like, you know, I wish I would have thought of these things when you were younger. Right, because now it's more expensive. Yeah, now it's more expensive. And, you know, there's other opportunities, right? Life insurance can also play a role if you are a working person and you some some life insurances will you cover, can come out. Yep, yep. You know, expenses while you're out of commission. And so these are things that, you know, when we talk about juicing the system. That's really what we should be teaching people. This is how you juice the system is by being educated on the things that um, the resources that you need just to, to kind of get through, but also to prepare for the play, for the times in which you won't be able to, you know, fulfill your productive duties and you can't work totally. and all these things. Totally. So I think it's, it's like, you know, instead of living paycheck to paycheck, we really need to talk about those taboo conversations. And, you know, the other pieces, you know, you mentioned it earlier, which is saving and creating a business. You know, uh, I think that, as entrepreneurs, you know, on this podcast, two entrepreneurs, two community leaders, we know that creating a business can definitely create some legacy. And that doesn't come with saying that it's very easy to do or no, it's hard work, share, right? but it's definitely worth it, you know, to, to have something that you've created that you can then say, I, I plan to fulfill this and then pass this on to the next generation, to my kids. So that way they start off with something. 
um, I think is, is really important. And I think that, you know, that kind of plays into the cities too, you know, like where you live really determines your ability to do these things, your access to creating the business, your access to permitting, your access to funding. Yep. Um, that is very, you know, a, a, another conversation within itself. Um, but I think that people have to really talk about these things. So like to wrap around all of the keys of generational wealth. One is financial education, making sure you understand your finances. The second one would be investing. You're, so, you know, investing, whatever that may be within yourself in a, a 401 or in stock. There's, there's even like, there's apps where you can invest like small amounts of money just to get your feet well to understand. Yes. They all have like educational components. There's ways to get involved. Yes. And to, to piggyback off of that thought, um, even for my kids, I have an account called green light which is like a yeah my kids have that too i think a marie has that right so you have like the little green uh, green light is what it's called it's basically an online um banking system and where you can deposit money for your kids you can set up chores and it kind of automates money when the chores are completed but there is a financial literacy component to it and where they are able to invest and it teaches them how to invest in certain stocks mind you they do have these it's not like you know we're not talking about day trading. We're talking about like, yeah, yeah, they have have like the apples and, and the uh, Amazons of the world on there, but it is a great tool to learn very early on about the abilities of investing and the abilities of what that means as an outcome. Um, and then not even that, like basic life lessons, like, like you said, my daughter has the cars. So she thinks she could just, you know, she thinks, Perspectively, that I just walk around swiping my card, like no concept of like how the money gets there. Where's the money coming from? Right? Yeah. So then she goes into, um, she asked me to stop at like 7 Eleven. She goes in and she's in there for a while. So my son and I are sitting in the car, like, what is she doing? So finally I get up and she's like, I keep swiping and it's not going through. I'm like, because you don't have enough money. (laughs) So we can start teaching them about Right. So like, you're going to be swiping here for the next hour is still not going to go through you don't have enough money did you check how much money you have right which also teaches them to not only just about budgeting but also about necessity right because there's nothing more important and nothing that really prioritizes your life more than getting declined exactly something that you thought you needed and you realize oh actually i don't really need it per se i just want it right so it also brings up that conversation of what do i need versus what do i want um, so I, I think the, I think these cards are great. So shout out to Greenlight because I think yeah, that's I think a, a great source. And you can see what they're spending their money on too. And you can lock them out yep. from places. So if you see that that Amazon and the Apple um, accounts are going way too high or that's where they're spending most of their money, you can shut that down and put a limit. So that way they can then understand like, okay, I only have the $10 now to spend on Amazon. I can't spend more than that. But I think that goes back to like that concept that we were talking about earlier about living paycheck to paycheck, right? And if we can learn, you know, if our children can learn very early on, like, okay, this is the amount of money that you have. What are your needs? What are your wants? And how do you prioritize those? I think you're teaching, you know, we're teaching them that lesson um, just through them having that card and kind of having a little bit of responsibility around what they do with their money. Right. A hundred percent. And I think so talking about paychecks, you know, when we talk about paychecks, that's another piece of the, the legacy as well. Right. Because we can't talk about getting to the next level without having a higher paycheck. Right. Because higher paychecks equal the ability to sustain a higher living quality 
and then also maintain the necessary keys like estate planning, life insurance, and better health care that we're talking about and understanding budgeting, right? How much can you budget if you make zero dollars, right? So making a higher paycheck allows you to budget, allows you to learn these things. And, you know, right now in the United States, the minimum wage will reach the $15 threshold in 2025. On Which a then cost of living will be three times as much as that. So at that point, really, is it going to help? Yeah, let's talk about it. It's definitely <laughs> not going to help. But uh, however, the conversation is moving in the right direction, I think. However, you always see those two sides, right? Is the $15 threshold really going to, you know, bankrupt the economy and the small businessman? Or is it going to actually improve the overall standard of living for minimum wage workers? Well, even there's a quote, right, from Robert, Representative Robert Scott. He's the chair of the House Committee on Education and Labor. And he stated, today, a full-time worker cannot afford a modest two-bedroom apartment in any county in the United States. Like, to me, that's a basic, um, not to me, but it is a basic thing of living is to have a roof over your head. And if you're saying that the average full-time worker cannot afford a modest two-bedroom apartment in any county in the U.S., what does that leave everybody? Right. A $15 minimum wage would give 30%, 31% of African Americans and 26% of Latinos a wage increase. Like that's scary. That's terrifying because, you know, you hear about the $15 wage increase and people really are, you know, just to hear people be so adamantly against it blows my mind, right? So like the Jeff Bezos of the world, if you can buy 18 yachts and small islands, you can pay your people $15, $20 an hour. Well, right? Like because Elon this kind of goes if back. If you can buy Twitter, you can pay your. Right. Come on, Elon more. Musk. You know what I mean? Like, this also goes back to the whole idea of, you know, what was happening down south, right? So, like Lafayette during the times of the economic boom in down south, why was that? Because they weren't paying their their workers. Why? Because their workers were enslaved. So of yep. course there was an economic boom. Of course they were getting all the profits they could possibly get because they weren't paying anyone. So how could we now say that this conversation is any different? It's not. Why? Because people are getting paid little chump money, $11. I think back in New York, when I first got my first job, I was getting paid $8 an hour. I was like 14 years old at $8 an hour and I thought I was like banking it. Oh no, I got I, my daughter, my daughter, my sister used to work for State Street Bank and I would get a summer job every year at State Street Bank and I think I was making like, I want to say like $12 or $14 an hour but I really thought I was living the life. You thought you were living your life, right? And that's us at an age in where there were no economic bounds, right? We didn't have to pay for mortgages, we didn't have to pay for cars and vehicles and all these other things so you know, when you have money at that point, that's a different conversation than when that is your actual salary at $12 an hour. You're 34, you know, 40 years old. You have two kids. You have husband, wife, partner, whatever. You have expenses. How could you possibly be living off of these things? Exactly. And then for the country to say that we don't need any social services, yet we're deeming anyone that charge, you know, that's paying their employees $15 it's like counterproductive. So if you look at like the rent, the rent costs in Massachusetts as a whole, so that median rent by bedrooms in Massachusetts, so a studio is 1850, 
A one bedroom is twenty two hundred. A two bedroom is twenty five hundred. A three bedroom twenty nine fifty, and a four bedroom thirty eight hundred. And to be to be honest, these look low. So if somebody is making fifteen dollars an hour, they're not even really able to to live. And then you expect them to have generational wealth to leave back to their kids and buy a house when they're spending twenty two hundred dollars just to live in a two bedroom apartment. Yep. Yep. And, and and save up six, six months of an emergency fund and buy a house. <laughs> and be mentally sane. <laughs> right. And be and be mentally stable. <laughs> well, like, I wanna I wanna get back to the, the beginning quote that we did with Danielle Solomon. Um to kind of finish off her quote. Um, she, she stated, therefore, I'm thrilled to convene that the National Advisory Council on Eliminating the Black-White Wealth Gap, this exceptional group of scholars and thought leaders, will spend the next year developing a meaningful, targeted, and effective set of policy solutions to begin to finally begin to close the gap, which means that, you know, all of this conversation that has been open for years upon years upon years, you know, I'm a big fan of people like Robert Reach, who's a, you know, a previous economic um, economists rather uh, for the United States, you know, you start to see that this wage gap has been happening since the early 70s. And then the recession hit and the recession just really just tore people apart. Right. And it it really uh, created that one percent and then the rest of us. So, you know, today in this this episode about intergenerational wealth gap, we ask you guys to take an action, Um, take action and reach out to the Center for American Progress. Uh, that's the National Advisory Council on Eliminating Black Wealth, Black White Wealth Gap, tasked with making changes and recommendations within its first hundred days. And this goes beyond the five specific proposals. Jen, so one is combat predatory lending and exploitive financial service fees by strengthening the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And that's basically a fancy way of saying not, you know, not giving predatory loans um, and not charging people $35 every time they bounce a check. Um, Number two, fully enforced civil rights statutes prohibiting housing discrimination and strengthening the oversight and enforcement of financial institutions to eliminate systemic differences in mortgage markets. And we didn't even get into that, but that's like, you know, discrimination around, you know, mortgages and, and, and rent. And our next, uh, yep, yep, episode. that's our next, next episode. Um, cancel student loans and offer debt free college. We, we talked about that a little bit. Biden um, or, yeah, like, come on, <laughs> give me my 50,000, Biden. I will still owe for all those. I will still things. have a balance. Biden. Yeah, I still will have a balance. <laughs> Um, four, bolster retirement incomes by establishing a national savings plan for workers who do not have retirement benefits their employers. Um, so really strengthening the backbone of like the social security system, um, creating something outside of an employer-specific 401k program. Um, and then provide seed capital, capital for America's youth in terms of national baby bonds program. I don't know a whole lot about that. Um, but again, as Giselle mentioned, the Center for American Progress and specifically the National Advisory Council on Eliminating the Black-White Wealth Gap has a ton of information on their website. There's lots of ways to get involved. Um, this is a multifaceted issue, as we talked about on this episode. So, you know, everybody should be involved and, and everybody has a has a role in, in, in turning this around. 
So stick with us on the next episode of Don't Touch My Podcast, where we'll be discussing what it means to finally get access to generational health, uh, intergenerational wealth, and then facing discrimination in those spaces. <laughs> so <laughs> and we finally always, get through, and here we are. <laughs> yep, and as always, you can find us at Don't Touch My Podcast on all social, me- social media, um, as well as on our website, which is DontTouchMyPodcast.com. And you can reach out to Giselle and I at info at DontTouchMyPodcast.com. And until next time, see you next Saturday. See you next Saturday.